0: Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to 3CR Radio 855 and your AM dial. the air where we discuss things, queerness, things that intersect with our different experience of queerness on Radical Radio. Thank you to the folks from In Psychedelia for that previous hour of conversation around safe drug use and legalisation. Now, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that 3CR broadcasts across Wurundjeri country from the Kulin nations. I pay my respect to Elders past and present and future and community members from this country and from the countries from which each and every one of our listeners are tuning in from. Now, I'm a beneficiary of settler colonialism, and within this acknowledgement of country, I'd also like to think about action and solidarity with First Nations people across this land, these nations, and the whole world. Uh, So language, resource, and cultural theft continues in huge ways across the land of so-called Australia. So I'd like to... um put a special mention to any brother boys or sister girls listening to the show this afternoon and any other First Nations and Indigenous queer and trans people from other occupied lands who are continuing their rightful sovereignty over land, seas, bodies, identities and futures. Now, um, thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. Um, I hope it's been a nice, easy, breezy Sunday. Um, my name's Frankie. I always forget to say my name when I first say hello, which is always a bit weird. Um, You might hear that we have a guest in the studio with us today. Um, So I'm joined in the studio by Emily Castle. Now, Emily Castle is a writer whose work has been published in New Matilda, Un Magazine, and Filament Journal. Emily first studied Sculpture and Spatial Practice at the Victorian College of the Arts and later Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. She's a member of Undercurrent Community Education Project where she facilitates workshops around challenging and preventing gendered violence and is currently a volunteer with the National, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. Emily has previously undertaken internships in policy development at SNAC. SNAC? Snake. Sorry, my apologies. Uh, National Voice for Our Children and at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Redfern, as well as volunteering at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and the Youth Referral and Independent Person Program. She also collaboratively runs Open Feminist Collective Brain Welcome, Emily. <laughs> thank, thank you, Frankie. You. <laughs> how are you going yeah I'm really well thanks so much for having me on the show today I'm really excited to have you it's nice to have um, a dear friend and also um, like a very highly intelligent writer and commentator and um, like I mean you're a slashy (laughs) it's what they call a slashy I mean but it's it's nice to have it's nice to have like really talented friends um, and yeah. to get them to come in and talk on your radio show. <laughs> love it. How fun. We love that. Um, we're going to be talking about lots of different things today, but basically um, kind of around the Yes campaign and um, mm-hmm. the racism that's kind of been within uh, the rhetoric of the Yes campaign and I guess after Yes Um, so we're going to go to a track now, but we'll be back, um, and we'll talk about some writing that Emily has done in relation to that. Um, next up, oh, the, the track that we came in with was, um, by Kalani, Honey. Um, it was off her new single, um, which is just called Honey, 2017. It's, I'm really excited for new music to come out by her i'm really into that track um next up we have sos by kalala from her album take me apart which we love thanks for tuning in folks you're listening to 3cr radio 855 on your am dial crewing the air you're listening to my name is frankie i'm here with emily castle We just heard two tracks. The first one was S.O.S. by Kalala from her new album Take Me Apart and Fantasy Feet Dugon Jr. by Miss Blanks from her 2017 EP Diary of a Thoughtaholic. Um, Both really great tracks. Love them. Love them. Love (laughs) (laughs) them. So um, today we are going to be... um, If you've just tuned in, um, we're going to be talking about um, a couple of articles um, that Emily has been writing around the Yes campaign and um, homo nationalism and racism that's been used in the rhetoric of the um, equality campaign. so basically, um, I want to just ask you, so for folks, um, just to give folks a bit of context, um, Emily wrote an article on the 4th of October for New Matilda, um, which is called Aussie Values the Problem with the Yes Campaign. So if you if you want to, um, if you're... Uh, got an internet connection um, around and you want to just have a look at it now or later <laughs> um, to know what we're talking about, um, that's, yeah, it's a great article just to, um, I guess, provide context for it. So basically my first question is, um, yeah, I was I was interested when you started to talk about um, the rhetoric and the language um, around how the Yes campaign were kind of like uh, appealing to general public. So I'm using general public as like talking marks. Um, I guess the kind of wider um, heteronormative um, dominant mainstream um, Mm -hmm. and ways that language that they use to appeal Mm -hmm. to folks for a Yes vote. Um, So, yeah, just interested to hear about... um, some of the stuff you articulated in your article? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question. So, I guess the impetus
1: for that initial article was because, you know, I was sort of following what was going on with the campaign and the debate around same sex marriage. And there were a lot of really great critiques of the heteronormativity of that whole um, campaign. So, for example, like Alison Gallagher wrote a really great article in The Guardian talking about the exclusion of trans and gender diverse people from the sort of really binary framework of the whole situation. You know, if we look at the the forms that we all got in the mail, it says same-sex marriage. It still really reinforces this dominant conventional understandings of sexuality, gender and relationships. However, what I was also noticing was that there was this constant appeal to nationalism that wasn't being spoken about as much. So in the type of rhetoric of talking about it as, you know, a moment of national unity or talking about uh, that it's about a fair go, that it's about greater equality for all Australians, I I, I guess I sort of felt I, I was interested as to what was going on and what could be the potential impacts of this later down the track in terms of shoring up uh, dominant national Australian identity, which always requires someone to be not that, you know. So mm-hmm. I think from I always say inclusion and exclusion as two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So in, for me, interrogating that rhetoric was a way of then looking at who, when we talk about equa- like equality and marriage, who
0: has ac- who has greater access to that equality? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that that what you said just before about a kind of nationalism built on what is not or built on. Um, exclusion or built on like one makes themselves by um, like making another I'm thinking about friends for mm-hmm. um, yeah so that's yeah, and so um, in that article you talk about um, you use the word homonationalism. Um, I'm not sure probably a lot of our listeners know what that means. But mm. um, yeah, thinking about how this idea of nationalism isn't just um, kind of Australia-based. It's very kind of, um, yeah, thinking about like European countries that have legalised gay marriage and how the same kind of nationalist rhetoric has been used there for this same-sex marriage. Mm.
1: Yeah, so the concept of homonationalism builds on the idea of homonormativity first and foremost, which was developed by Lisa Duggan to talk about the way in which in sort of a, a neoliberal framework LGBTIQ rights can become, you know, very much aligned with, with um white, cisgendered, able-bodied privilege. Mm. And then US-based queer theorist Jasper Poir built on that to develop the concept of homo nationalism, which looks at how an LGBTIQ rights agenda can and does intersect with nationalist ideology. Mm. So a, a classic example that's often spoken about is pinkwashing in relation to Israel marketing itself as a country that is gay-friendly, um, which then allows for... Uh, distracts attention from the you know the military the abuse of human rights in palestine and everything else that's going on so homo nationalism in the way that i was using it in the article was looking at the way for example like a, a discourse of love has been used in the marriage equality campaign and so you know if we understand marriage as as a contract essentially you know we need to see it not only as a contract between two people but also in a sense as a contract between these people in the state. Um, So, you know, in asking for queer people, asking for Australia and government to recognise our love, we're also therefore in turn recognising the authority of the state to do that. Mm. So in a sense we can see the way that same-sex marriage reinforces the power of the state to decide whose relationships are more or less valid, whose identities are more or less Australian Um, And that gives power to the state to decide who who falls outside of that as well.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, And yeah, I think there's also been this kind of conversation around, um, you know, a kind of a system and structure who has historically... um, oppressed and excluded um, lots of people in the LGBTI community now kind of offering this contract of, yeah, um, validation from the state um, and also kind of... Like LGBTI people within that contract, um, I guess, like uh, agreeing with uh, the structure of the state and the state's power. Um, And that's not to say that, you know, if you decide not to get married, you're not complicit in the structure of the state, but um, it is a definite agreement in which there is this kind of, you know, um, yes, this coupling is valid. Or and, and and by that val- by that coupling being valid, you are then um a successful um and uh kind of like um able body functioning in, you know, the white nationalism of Australia, yep. capitalism and
1: yeah. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, you know, because I think it's really easy to sort of pinpoint uh, nationalism that goes on in the no campaign. Uh, you know, so there was this real rhetoric amongst the uh, Christian lobbyists and the far right that same-sex marriage would weaken the nation. You know, if we if they see the, the nuclear family as being the bedrock of the nation, then same-sex marriage was seen as a threat to that. It's a lot harder to see the way nationalism uh, structures the Yes campaign because it often is a lot more implicit. But I think it's really important to look at that, even when it is um, perhaps not as extreme or as uh, visibly violent because it still does allow for this idea of, yeah, who is not isn't Australian and these ideas of, like, Australian values, you know. So if we look at a lot of the campaign material or the advertisements, we have a very visible representation of, in a sense, who is seen as being at the centre of this campaign, so very much white, um, cis, able-bodied, thin, same-sex couples. Yeah. But beyond that, we also need to look at the way that whiteness is sort of embedded into the structure of this this, um, debate and this institution around marriage as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so if you're just tuning in, folks, um, I'm Frankie. You're listening to Queering the Air. We're talking to Emily Castle about um, racism and homo nationalism um, embedded within the rhetoric of the Yes campaign and talking about um, what happens after Yes. I was. I spent-
1: Has your subscription lapsed? We want you back. Spend more than the evening with us.
0: Reunite with us.
1: Subscribe to 3CR and get excited. Call 9419 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. And let's get back together. It'll feel so good.
0: We both are so excited because we're reunited. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR 855 on your AM dial, Queering the Air, with Frankie and Emily. And today we are talking about um, homo nationalism and the rhetoric of racism within the Yes campaign um so we've just been talking about an article that Emily wrote for New Matilda on the 4th of October um, and kind of analyzing um, the language used within the equality the equality campaign equal equal marriage campaign. Um, and one thing I did notice, um, which kind of uh, yeah I was, confused about was this whole idea of uh, fair go or something Um, and I noticed that when they were announcing the votes that lots of politicians were saying you know this um, decision is about a fair go for all Australians you know it's it's the equality that we need to um, you know like an idea that this is um, a human right which it is But also I felt within that rhetoric was totally um, kind of negating how uh, damaging the campaign has been like for actually, I don't know, to to then say it's a fair go whilst all of these kind of queer mental health services and Lifeline have been completely inundated um, during the postal vote Um, and to then kind of be like, okay, well, now we're celebrating and now we have to be really thankful for this um, this decision and now we're included within the state and we have a fair go and that's great and we shouldn't complain. Um, yeah, which I kind of it just felt quite, yeah, I guess, I mean all part of the project, you know, nothing's going, <laughs> all part of the project. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just thought whether – whether you had any other thoughts or comments about that kind of idea of fair go and, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I think that that type of rhetoric has been used throughout the whole campaign um, by politicians but also by campaigners as well to argue for same-sex marriage. And I think the point that you raise about, you know, who – who is this a win for? Who has this had the most impact upon? Um, who who has the most access to these sorts of support services? Who has those material resources to be able to um, see this as being a fair go and not be incredibly harmfully impacted by the whole the really vitriolic um, homophobic public debate that we've had is so important to talk about. But then on top of that, I also think, um, as you point out, this this language of human rights. Uh, really uh, demands that we also look at the current human rights abuses that are going on on uh, Manus Island at the moment at the decommissioned uh, immigration detention centre or prison on um, in Lombrum, because, you know. It- it's, very, it's quite easy, I guess, to, to point to the hypocrisy of politicians, you know, to say that when the results were being announced and, you know, Bill Shorten talks about how you know everyone's 100% loved and Australians all being accepted, rah, 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 that we can say, okay, but people aren't talking about what's going on in Manus and this is this blatant hypocrisy to celebrate human rights on the one hand and then to uh, totally abuse them on the other. And I think what like that's absolutely the case, but we also need to look at the way that the one reinforces the other. So, you know, recently Australia has been elected to the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council and part of that was on the back of, um, you know, arguing that we're, we've got increased support for LGBTIQ rights in this nation. And so we need to consider how with, you know, very likely same-sex marriage will, will, will be legalised in this country quite soon, how does that allow Australia to position itself as a, as a beacon, as a forerunner of human rights to therefore legitimate um and distract from the ongoing abuses that are occurring elsewhere, the human rights abuses that Australia is quite is evidently responsible yeah.
0: for maintaining. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. And it seems it seems uh yeah, blatantly obvious that that that, that kind of um contradiction is going on, mm-hmm. that they're being elected to now go on that to be a kind of representative of human rights, mm. or um, some kind of figure point for um, the compass of justice, or something, mm. yep. or um, yeah, yeah, that um, kind of brings me to thinking about, um, I guess, yeah, the day that the day that the yes vote was announced. Um, you know, kind of within the celebration, um, lots of other things were going on. Um, can you talk about how you felt? on that day? Like, I know that we've, I know that we've like spoken briefly about it, but like, what was your, fi- What like, how did you feel?
1: I was so angry. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, like, I think it's important to be clear that I'm really glad that a yes vote won, you know, but I also was, in a sense, I was really curious as the day unfolded, um, particularly as to whether any groups, any activist groups would use that opportunity to uh, campaign against Manus for example um, and the fact that, that didn't happen and then the fact that almost instantaneously as soon as those results were announced in the media we had this scapegoating particularly of communities in western sydney as being somehow responsible for these like really high no votes um, i think for me really pointed to the fact that this yes vote can only be seen as a victory and we can only see it this sort of we can only see it as being uh, a a marker of the fairness inclusion of this country if there are certain things that we really don't talk about, and so that involves not talking about xenophobia, not talking about racism, not talking about whiteness, um, and so yeah, like the, the the scapegoating of communities in Western Sydney. So for any listeners that don't know, um, there were certain electorates um, in Western Sydney that. Um, have a you know have high populations of um, you know I guess, like multicultural electorates or um, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds with high proportions of no votes and this was really hinged upon by the media as trying to draw a correlation between these things which not only you know disregards the fact that there are so many electorates with amazingly high yes votes with incredibly diverse communities not only disregards the um, the role of like white Christian lobbyists um, and white male politicians in leading that no vote as well. But it also really centres this idea that whiteness
0: and queerness and progressiveness somehow stick together. Yeah, yeah. It's a very um, colonial idea of what queer and gay mean, yeah, um, and it's a very kind of like colonial evacuation as well of um, the many and like m- like multitudinous ways that non-white people um, experience queerness and gender and across history and across Mm. time um and yeah kind of just kind of just assumes that those communities um in and of itself are like kind of essentially um not progressive or like not um supportive of of like lgbti like communities um which is very a way of kind of yeah like kind of through through homophobia can um through claiming homophobia can then like justify racism um, yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah. So there was there was another. So thinking about um, ideas after that initial um article that you wrote. Um. So yeah, thinking into what has happened since um, the fourth of October. We had the yes vote announced on the 15th. Um, we've had the recent uh, closure of um, the prison camp on Manus Island. Um, we've had a pretty well-documented um, evidences of, um, you know, pretty active and violent uh, human rights abuses happening there in the last couple of days, which is not to say that Only now have human rights abuses been happening um, and that the sanction of, um, you know, those people um, seeking safety has not been happening for years on end. Um, But it is, um, I guess, kind of thinking about how that, um, yeah, how that has continually kind of been playing out within this, within the climate of, yeah, having a yes vote. And as you said before, like, These things are not – there's not the yes vote over here and then Australia's, um, like, torture um, offshores over there. Like, Mm. you know, they're completely linked. They're by the same state. Um, You know, we're still living on stolen land. Um, We're still living without a treaty with First Nations people here. Um, So – and all of those things being inextricably linked. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's why I think this this concept of homo nationalism is really useful, because it allows us to see the way these things reinforce one another. So with um, the yeah, with the torture and crisis going on in Manus at the moment, you know, we can really link that to um, the dominance of white sovereignty and this like incredibly forceful refusal to. Back down, you know, by the Australian government to back down on its claim to sovereignty and its sovereign borders, um, and this refusal to ever let any of those people come to this place, which being being stolen land in the first place and continues to be stolen land, and then we can, you know, link that to what's going on with the current debate around uh, the 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 results of the same-sex marriage survey and the the demonisation of certain communities as voting no. In that, again, it really reinforces this idea that white Australia is the best, essentially, that white Australia, you know, that white Australian values are the most progressive, mm-hmm. are the most liberal, are the, and are the best for everyone, that everyone should subscribe to them. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make clear in something that I said before, when I said that there's this sort of um, attachment or alignment between queerness, whiteness, and progressiveness, I don't mean that that's any sort of inherent um, like alignment yeah. or that, that being queer is about being white. Absolutely. Like on the contrary, rather, I think that's how this this nationalist discourse constructs these things, and that that alignment does a lot of work um, in in the political sphere in terms of who is seen as being, yeah, you know, being being most worthy or being most Australian or being
0: being most queer, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, visible visible ways of having your queerness acknowledged or um, this kind of way that white supremacy works to reaffirm Absolutely. all of those labels. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, folks, my name's Frankie. You've been listening to Queering the Air. We've got Emily Castle on the show. Um, we're going to play a couple more tracks. We'll be back. Um, thanks so much for tuning in.
1: raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual people who are multi-gender attracted their partners and their families bisexual alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of melbourne to offer support a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others experience of multi-gender attraction these groups are for bisexuals those who are questioning and their loved ones for more information visit by alliance.org or email info at by alliance.org Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now.
0: Welcome back to Queering the Air. You're listening to 3CR radio. My name's Frankie. I'm here with Emily. We just heard Do It Ourselves produced by Sim CZ Dio Gandhi from the 2016 EP Do It Ourselves and Dime 2 by various asses from the 2017 album Lotion. And we've been talking about homonationalism, racism within the Yes campaign, um now I want to segue to a statement that was released on Rise um the Rise Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees Facebook on Wednesday the 15th of November which is the day that the yes vote was announced. Um and Emily you've got the statement there you wanted to read a couple of different bits from it. Um I know that, um, yeah, basically there was – I know that you can read it if folks want to, um, are looking for it online. You can find it by looking up um, RISE's Facebook. So it's RISE Refugees, Survivors and Ex-Detainees and you can look for the post there. Um, Were there some parts of it that you particularly thought were relevant around – this conversation
1: mm. um, I mean I think it like it's an amazing and incredibly strong statement and I'd really um, recommend all listeners go seek it out and read through the entirety of it but maybe yeah. I'll just read through a couple of sections that seem particularly relevant to yeah. what we're talking about today yeah so in this statement which was released on the morning before the results were announced um, the so it starts by with firstly so I'm quoting here. Firstly, as queer refugees who come to this land to seek protection, we acknowledge that we are living on stolen land where Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded and that the ongoing oppression we are enduring every day is rooted in anti-blackness and genocide against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The statement then proceeds to ask a lot of questions about, about the debate, about the role of the Australian government in trafficking people to Manus and Nauru, about the the purpose of marriage and goes on to ask, I quote again, why should we have to ask for permission in order to get married? Why are many people allowed to have a say about marriage equality when this does not concern them at all? Why aren't those of us queer refugees and asylum seekers without citizenship allowed to vote given this is about our human rights? And maybe the last bit that I will just read, um, which is towards the end of the statement, I quote again, most queer refugees are subjected to multiple layers of oppression, and many of us live in extreme poverty with limited access to public housing as well as other support services. While we wish to hear that the majority of the population who cast their vote has voted yes, at the same time, regardless of the outcome of the survey, we would like to encourage privileged queer people, i.e., middle, or upper class, white cisgender able-bodied gay men and lesbians to take an intersectional approach to future campaigns as we've already seen a non-intersectional approach creating a lot of problems for queer groups who experience multiple layers of oppression our voices are constantly being silenced and our experiences ignored even though quite often we have to deal with the worst It's really crucial that there is proper consultation with people who are queer and Indigenous, refugee, people of colour, et cetera, and that they are in the decision-making process and given meaningful leadership positions instead of always being exploited and used as tokens for diversity purposes.
0: Yeah, that last bit um, is really great. It's an active um, call for people to take a more accountable and responsible approach to campaigning, which I think is, you know, if folks are wondering how to kind of um, be there and turn up. That statement is really great as to try and to, um, yeah, incorporate a more intersectional approach to those campaigns around same-sex marriage. I think it's really good.
1: Absolutely. And I think for me some things that are so powerful about this statement is both, you know, in the parts I read out in the beginning, is this acknowledgement of the the inest- inextricability of Um, of different struggles, of the fact that you can't campaign for queerness and not talk about sovereignty and not talk about racism, that these things are bound up in one another and that um, the mainstream LGBTIQ movement needs to take that into account, needs to take into account that it's always, that here in Australia it's campaigning on stolen Indigenous land, that what the mainstream LGBTIQ movement is asking for and demanding has impacts upon the lives of so many people, including people outside of the mainstream queer community. Yeah, And then in that middle part I read out, I think for me that's really important because I think citizenship privileges don't get spoken about enough in relation to the LGBTIQ movement. You know, we might talk about whiteness, for example, but that also needs to be talked about in relation to who has – you know, marriage is an institution of citizenship um, Can and, yeah, we need to be talking about it more in relationship to who – you know, who wasn't – who's not able to vote in that postal survey in the first place. You know, both young queer people were obviously – excluded from having a say in something that will affect them so much into the future, but that queer asylum seekers and refugees without citizenship have also been excluded. When, if we look at the the way in which marriage equality reinforces normative ideals of what it means to be queer, that those, those ideals have been used to justify the ongoing exclusion of queer asylum seekers and refugees from this country. So, for example, um, you know, people have spoken about um, several, you know, there've been quite a few articles about how um, how hypocritical it how hypocritical it is for the marriage equality campaign to talk about how queer people are being accepted when many queer asylum seekers are being sent to uh, or or detained on Manus and Nauru. But I think what's also really important to talk about is how the Australian government uses those stereotypes around what is considered normal in queer relationships in order to justify. The refusal of asylum um, seeker status to many people. Yes. So you know what, what dominant ideas of like what a gay relationship should look like, what a lesbian relationship should look like, are then used to say no, your your relationship isn't isn't fitting this this normative framework or ideal.
0: Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think that's important because it's really easy to sometimes pinpoint or to um, to say that the problem is over there. So for example, to say that the problem is you know this homophobia in certain communities the problem is um you know the threat of violence for to asylum seekers people on Manus. but what we actually need to look at is the fact this violence that is going on within these institutions within the australian government and so you know and a politics of inclusion also isn't enough in and of itself because if we're just including people within these structures then in a sense we're just we're just doing better and nicer
0: violence yeah yeah solidifying the same state structure of um oppression and absolutely yeah yeah 100 percent. challenge the system yeah know? yeah um thank you so much emily castle for joining me today um it's really been a pleasure to um talk about um all of these things with you never enough time never, never enough time no. um yeah an hour just isn't enough we need <laughs> we need the whole other on a sunday oh, sunday a whole queer other um Yeah, I've just got one quick community announcement because we are um, heading to the end of our show. Um, For folks who are listening in from Nam or Melbourne, um, there is a fundraiser for Estrogenius, um, which is um, if any of the folks listening in Um, saw a show by Embedded Swish, which is an all-trans collective uh, theatre group. Really amazing experimental theatre. They made a a show earlier in the year called Our Lady of the Flower. Um, So there's a fundraiser for them November 30th, 10.30pm till 3am. And it's a fundraiser for their show coming up next year in next wave. Um, and just a quick statement from them, um, our practice is our catharsis mechanism, appre- expression and weapon. We make our art to share with our communities and to educate wider society through the exposure of our voices, bodies and stories. So come along to the Night Cat. It's uh, November 30th, um, $10 to 15 to $15 uh, sliding scale uh, performances from uh, the Embedded Swishes um and also performances from Sezo Snot, Jennifer Loveless, Slam Ross, Onyx and Tomb Raver. Uh, Also a note, the uh, the, um, Nightcat is wheelchair accessible and has wheelchair accessible toilets. So uh, we're going to play one more track for you. Um, Again, thanks so much for tuning in. Do stay tuned for Hip Sister Hop with Sister Zai and have a great Sunday afternoon.